0: to the Data Stack Show, where we talk with data engineers, data teams, data scientists, and the teams and people consuming data products.
1: I'm Eric Dodds. And I'm Costas Pardalis. Join us each week as we explore the world of data and meet the people shaping it.
0: Welcome back to the Data Stack Show. We have a really cool guest lined up, Mike, who is the Director of Engineering for LeafLink, which provides all sorts of solutions for Uh, both brands and retailers in the cannabis industry. And the burning question that I want to ask is they have a lot of different products and it's just really hard to do sort of analytics and I mean, really even software development across a suite of four or five products. And they may even have more than that. So I just want to hear how he's approaching that. I mean, that's just a building one product for one person is is really hard. And so I want to hear how they're doing that. Costas, what's your one question?
1: Yeah, my question that I want to ask from the moment that I saw like their website and their product line is about the usage of APIs in a marketplace. That's a pretty unique thing that you don't often see in marketplaces. And it's clearly technical. And I would love to hear about the business and the technical reasoning behind this choice. So I'm looking forward to chat with Mike.
0: Great. Let's dig in. Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Today, we are really excited to have Mike, the Director of Engineering for LeafLink on the show. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, I appreciate it. And why don't you just give us, uh, you have such an interesting background and I wanna dig into that, but could you just give us a brief overview of your background, then what you do at LeafLink and then what LeafLink does and the problems that they solve?
2: Yeah, sure. So like I said, my name is Mike Luby. I'm the director of engineering here at LeafLink. I oversee our marketplace product. I've been building software for the last 16 plus years professionally and worked from small startup all the way up to enterprise level companies and, you know, both from a SaaS enterprise SaaS perspective and quite a few DTC spaces as well. LeafLink itself is a cannabis industries wholesale marketplace where we're defining the way that thousands of brands and retailers can manage track their orders and relationships, and they can focus on growing their businesses. It's a B2B marketplace where those producers can you know, meet their retail customers and buy product uh, from each other, and then build those relationships through CRM tools and other tools to help optimize their business. We also have quite a few other areas of the product that kind of uh, ladder up through our marketplace, specifically our payments um, side, which, you know, we I don't know if you've recently saw in, in the news, we recently closed a $250 million debt facility round, one of the largest deals to bring liquidity to this specific market, given all of the um, compliance challenges that, that this market has. We use this, comp- this capital to support the cannabis supply chain as a whole by providing that liquidity directly to licensed businesses. We also have a shipping portion product, which we recently launched in March of 2020 to help streamline the order delivery experience for those our customers. We provide a you know faster, more reliable delivery experience to those customers. And we continue to roll these out to a whole bunch of different markets over the next year. But it allows us to be part of that supply chain, optimize it, and provide, you know, better service overall in comparison to, to some of the delivery aspects that they have today. Additionally, we also have our LeafLink Insights product launched around the same time as our shipping product. This is really our, provides the data insights for our customers to build, measure, and deploy their brands on LeafLink. We also provide in-depth insights for each of those unique markets in terms of how their products perform, um, their categories perform, how they interact with the customers, how the market is overall, et cetera.
0: I mean, you provide so much infrastructure. And this, tell me if this is a dumb question, but, and I know this is a a show focused on sort of data and technology, but I think the way that a lot of our audience thinks is they apply technology to solve business problems. So, and you touched on some of this, but I just wanted to ask the question directly. I mean, there are other, you know, sort of marketplace type solutions out there, you know, even generic type solutions, you know, that sort of connect wholesalers and retailers. And I'm just interested to know, with such incredible growth, you know, what what are the specific challenges that LeafLink solved or that brings to the table? So you mentioned that shipping, you know, is one area where the options weren't great. There, I know that compliance in the cannabis industry is certainly a consideration. But I just love to know, you know, you're bringing powerful technology to the table to solve a really specific marketplace problem and really sort of infrastructure problem for the industry and i just love to know what what problems created the demand in this specific industry
2: you know i think compliance is, is probably the one of the bigger ones out there is is this industry so for example the united states obviously is is not full federally legalized at this point and each state has its very their own individual specific rules that differ from state to state whereas canada for example Canada has a little bit better from a consistency across province perspective. So what our tool does, one, it helps with that compliance side, right? So understanding each individual state's needs and requirements for things like the marketplace, for licensing, for deliveries, financing, et cetera. It gives our customers the ability to really understand who they're working with, making sure that they're working with reputable and compliant retailers or brands, et cetera. And then you know the the other side of it is is the fact that it's this tool is is specifically geared towards cannabis so there are aspects to this tool and cannabis that are unique in comparison to other kind of wholesale marketplace and tools like it you know we focus on things where we have our for a very tactical example uh, our testing information based on uh, the strains of each of the you know different flower and and products available um, and then we have that information surfaced within the product, so they have it at their fingertips. And then we also oh, work closely. Yeah, we also work closely with a, a you know compliance tracking software system called Metric. So we have deep integration with with that. So we make sure that you know all the touch points through the supply chain are compliant and they have all the information needed um, to be on the level.
0: Super interesting. Thank you for that background. It's just I think our our listeners just appreciate the. The context. All right, I have a ton of questions, but I've been monopolizing the conversation. So, Costas, please get us back on
1: track. <laughs> no, that's a super interesting uh, conversation to have. So, Mike, you ma- went us like uh, through a quick overview of the product, and actually, mm-hmm. it's not just one product. From what I understand, like it's a complete suite of products in order to support like this market. I mean, how do you manage? to have this crazy velocity in product development, which of course, I I guess it reflects also the, the growth that the market has and also the company. Can you give us a little bit of how it looks like inside the company? In terms of coming up with the product ideas, developing the product, delivering, and all these things. I mean, there are plenty of companies out there struggling with just one product, how it looks in a company like yours.
2: Uh, Yeah. I'm going to start with kind of how we structure the product and engineering organization at at the company, because I think that really starts off and and is the kind of entry point to how we really build this high-velocity teams, right? So... At LeafLink, uh, we structure our product engineering organization around our business domains. Currently, we have five individual domains. We have uh, liquidity, payments, commerce, deliveries, and our platform. Within each domain, we have several cross-functional pods uh, that focus on on key goals that drive the customer value. Each cross-functional pod consists of members from engineering, product, design, DevOps, quality, all of that. Um, and the exact breakdown of each pod in terms of the specific resources is you know really dependent on their specific needs. But I would say there's this this kind of pod structure um, is very similar to the, the kind of Spotify pod guild model where we have those cross-functional partners. There are multiple, you know, I in addition to that, I think going a step deeper in terms of velocity, there's a, multiple things that we, we do. We are very thoughtful and measured in terms of how we design and think about product, which then leads into also how we also think about an architect, software. And then we go through our processes to ensure that, that software is built to the highest quality and delivered, you know, as quickly as possible with, with minimal defects, right? Really at its core, I think, you know, some of the key aspects that I think are very important that, that we leverage are one is automation. So we have a robust CI/CD pipeline to get the code from each individual engineer to production you know, as, as quickly as possible and, and without sacrificing quality, right? Next is, is accountability. And this is really across both the product and engineering and even at the entire company level, we really hone in and, and focus on OKRs. We leverage that across the entire, not only product development, life cycle but also from a career growth and development perspective we 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 leverage that platform or that framework to really hold ourselves accountable and deliver product and and it ensures that we're thoughtful around what we're doing uh, from a step function perspective the next is is growth and this really you know ties again to the okr perspective but you know specifically calling it out is is making sure that the teams have the training the tools the you know, being so that they are being challenged to, to grow both um, technically and from a, a career development or professional perspective as well is, is key because it, it all kind of ladders up to that ownership and, and, and accountability as well. How big is the team right now? We are currently around, the engin- the, the engineering team itself is around 30. And I think the company is around a, over about 130 Total. We have offices in New York, LA, San Francisco, Denver, Austin, Toronto. So we're kind of spread out as of right now, but a majority of the engineering department is in New York.
1: And was it like this from the beginning? Because, you know, like many times when we talk with, with people, we focus too much on how the structure is today. And why it's great and how it helps and all that stuff. But I think it's also quite important, like the journey to get to this state that you are having today. So I don't know how much aware you might be of that, but like that would be amazing to share a little bit with us, especially for a company that grows so fast, which probably means that any kind of also organizational changes have happened fast. So how was uh, the company look like in the past and how did it progress to reach this uh, very robust and high velocity structure that you just described to us?
2: Yeah, I, I've only been here for about four months, but I do have some insight in terms of how we kind of started and where we are, where we are today, right? Like any startup, it started with our our, our co-founders, Ryan and Zach. They built out the team for, for the last, I think, four or five years the company has been around. It has been a relatively scrappy team. Within the last year, from a management perspective, the engineering team really consisted of the VP of engineering and an engineering manager. The rest was more of a flat, flat organization relatively recently within the last, i want to say four or five months, we started bringing on more, more engineering management to help us scale, right? You know, our VP uh, and CTO have done a great job up until this point, but it's time for them to focus on um, a lot of really strategic high-level things while we bring in more talented engineering management to, to make sure that we are growing
1: and building today. Sounds great. So let's move to the technology. Can you share with us a little bit more information about the stack that we are using? and also if you can give us like an indication of the infrastructure and the volumes of like requests that you have to work with. in general, like give us a bit of more color into what it means to build this product and also to operate it from an engineering perspective.
2: So at a high level, we are in Amazon Web Services. We're a containerized application leveraging Kubernetes. We are primarily today, a Python stack leveraging Vue.js on the front end. We leverage Postgres, Redshift, Terraform as well. That at a high level is pretty straightforward. We are continuing to invest in bringing more, more newer technologies, more newer capabilities. Within our technical stack, we are driving towards event-driven and service-oriented architectures as we continue to accelerate over 2021. One thing I specifically do want to call out, though, is, is what I find really that I appreciate the most after joining LeafLink is that our CICD pipeline is pretty robust. I know that kind of sounds like a, a silly thing or a table stakes, but based on my experience at you know, larger companies in the past, like ci CICD pipeline is kind of top, top of the line where we can quickly get that code, the work from an engineer, get it to production pretty automatically, you know, making sure we have the quality in place and, and, and whatnot. So they can see their, you know, their efforts in production in, in customers' hands pretty quickly. I think that's pretty rewarding.
1: Yeah, that's great. And I think that every engineer out there is going to appreciate uh, the value of having like a robust CI/CD pipeline there. Uh, I don't think that anyone can disagree with that. I want to repeat the same question that I did about the organization and how it changed. But this time around the, te- the technology, I know that, as you said, like you've been there only for like four months, but how do you think that as the company uh, matured and the product matured, the technologies also uh, changed? What was the process? And what technologies, for example, you introduced now and you didn't have in the past, and this was also like the result of having the, the growth that you have and having also to build and maintain the structure that we talked earlier.
2: So at the you know very beginning. And then, you know, like any company of, of this size and who are growing, there are still, you know, one could say technical debt aspects of it. But at the very beginning, we were uh, a Django Python application. You know, the the standard, you know, you hit a page, it loads a template, it, it renders data, you click submit on a form, it, it sends the data back and just kind of refreshes the page. From there, we start to introduce, you know, those single page uh, application kind of technology. So bringing in Vue into the stack. Um, as we are continuing to scale out the organization, as we are continuing to you know, hit the product market fit and, and deliver functionality that customers should sure you want, we're introducing the new technology. So we're bringing on uh, more and more uh, managed solutions from Amazon. Really one of kind of the mandates is like, what does Amazon provide from a technology perspective? from a managed solution perspective that we can integrate into our, our platforms so we can continue to accelerate our development. So one of those things is, is DynamoDB. For example, we're pushing towards uh, leveraging Dynamo. Um, we're pushing towards leveraging Amazon's Lambda functionality and serverless, their event bridge technology for event-driven um, architectures, et cetera. We have a very robust container containerization of our platform you know, like I mentioned, leveraging ECS and Kubernetes and, and whatnot. Our DevOps team is, you know, top notch. They they do some some excellent magic on their end.
1: That's great. You said that you are moving more and more into leveraging AWS technologies. This has also the side effect of a much stronger lock-in inside the vendor, right? Do you think that this is like some kind of risk? And also based on your experience, not just like in LeafLink, but also other large companies that you worked before, this vendor looking with the cloud and like all this also movement towards like a multi-cloud environment and all that stuff. How important do you think it is? And how much do you think like it, it should affect the decisions from an engineering perspective?
2: Over my, my experience, in, and I didn't touch on this earlier, but I'll touch on that. You know, I've, I've worked at Salesforce. i worked at Nike. So pretty large systems overall. Yeah. My personal opinion is that Yes, I agree that there is, in theory, vendor lock-in. And that is something, you know, as a business, you should consider and think about. But I think that, you know, from my experience, the Amazon services that you provide, that that they provide are pretty robust and are top quality solutions that, you know, if you are to switch, I I would be hard-pressed to say there's another, you know, technology stack out there that more infrastructure stack out there that would, you know, be really apples to apples to them. They're, in my opinion, you know, best of breed, right? Yep. Now I think that you can, as you're going and building your, your technology, your application logic, your, you know, your business logic and whatnot, you can account for potential vendor lock-in and abstract out some key areas. And in, in, in terms of a you know, a, in case of glass break here kind of situation where you need to move. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know there has to be a balance there as well because you know the chances of that happening are probably pretty slim. So why spend the extra effort to do that? Yeah. You know, from my experience, Amazon provides a lot of great stuff. I know I'm kind of sounding like an Amazon salesperson at this point, but <laughs> it you know it, it really it really does do everything we wanted. You know, in previous organizations, you know we worked on you know Google Cloud and and you know on-prem solutions, but just Amazon has always been the but kind of the gold standard
1: in that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I know that, um, okay, usually the multi-cloud, like Paradigm, I think it's something that you hear about really large enterprises because they have like their own reasons and politics and compliance that they have to consider like this kind of architectures. But it's very interesting to hear about this also like from the perspective of an engineer and what that means for the engineer. That's the whole thing about products, right? Like if it makes your life easier and you're happy with it, why you should, change it anyway so and yeah i agree aws is probably i mean they started this whole thing right with with the cloud and the infrastructure as a service so yeah i think it makes total sense they have like almost everything that you will need up there sometimes it reminds me i think who said that like i had a friend who was giving this metaphor that it's like a supermarket of technology you know like there's just everything in there, probably even like their own employees don't know about all the different products that they have at the end <laughs> that they can offer through AWS.
2: I think it was a smart move a long time ago when Bezos is like, you know, develop technologies and products that we can then resell, right? And, and, yeah. and do. I think that was the right approach for Amazon. And, you know, I think after all these years, it, you could see that, it's, you know, it was the right choice, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Costas, if you don't mind, I have I have a question burning in my mind. Like, I'm interested to know, you know, we've talked about sort of the software development lifecycle and team structure in terms of shipping software across multiple products. And one of the implications sort of downstream from shipping the software is sort of the data and analytics piece from having multiple products. And I know just from working with some some of our customers and just past experience that it can be really difficult to sort of understand product usage across multiple products. I'd just love to know from your perspective, how do you think about that from an engineering standpoint? And do you do any work around sort of servicing the teams that are running different products? And then is there an effort or existing sort of infrastructure workflow around sort of understanding the, the sort of product usage across multiple products?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, that is a critical part of, you know, I think one of Weblink's successes is leveraging kind of how customers use the product, not only from like a usability perspective, but also, you know, from, from how they leverage it and, and use it for their own success, right? That allows us to be, you know, very data-driven and understand, you know, what will potentially work and, and use that to define new features and new workflows for them to be successful. You know, as you kind of alluded to, there's a challenge across multiple products, there's a challenge in terms of what, you know, for example, like what is a user in product A versus a product, you know, product B, right? mm. and, you know, there's, you know, if you have a unified authentication layer, then great. You know, you can say, okay, let's let's limit down to, you know, the user IDs, for example. But then you also sure. potentially run into their personas, right? So right. smaller or smaller customers, right? The the same person who is doing the logistics side is also the sales rep, who is also the CEO, and who's also the guy right. who is, you know, mar- the marketing team. So like each persona also has like a different usage and. Really understanding the company size, how they function, what they're doing is is critical and having the infrastructure in place to pipe all that data. And then, you know, I'm very fortunate to work with some people on the the data team who are super talented. They go above and beyond when it comes to the data science side of this and really understanding Hmm. and and really thinking about how the customer functions and then uh, surfacing that with you know, our cross-functional partners, right? Our product organization, our sales team, our market team, so that they can be successful as well.
0: Sure. Yeah. It's just interesting. Uh, Just looking at the suite of products, I was thinking, okay, you have a large, if you have a larger organization and I'll use your example, the person who's working on the logistics and shipping is different from maybe the person who's using the advertising product, for example, right? And those are two different personas within the organization. And so you're capturing this data but when you think about even simple metrics, say, like, you know, an activated user or something, the definition of those things, you know, likely change from product to product just because they're doing very different things and they're very different sort of, you know, user journeys within the product. That's really interesting and actually really cool to hear that, that that's, it seems like a competitive advantage for you that you have all that sorted out because that's really, really hard work.
2: Yeah, you know, I think it it also kind of plays into defining the appropriate KPIs, right? What is a success metric for each of those personas? And then that helps you hone in on what what does success mean for the logistics persona? What does success mean for that marketing persona, et cetera? And and so that way we can, you know, tweak and and hone in on, on the appropriate functionality for them.
1: You mentioned at some point, Mike, that you are moving towards implementing event sourcing. Is this correct?
2: Yeah, event-driven architecture is, is what we're moving towards in some areas.
1: Yeah, that's that, that's very interesting. Like, can you share with us a little bit uh, more information around like this choice? Why you want to move towards that? So while we have different areas of the
2: product, right? Like as I mentioned earlier, like the. Leafly platform really focuses around the marketplace. And then the other products are are key pieces of that. One data model that specifically applies to all of those areas, for example, is orders, right? Where, whether that is a retailer going in and creating an order with a a brand and saying, Hey, I want this, these products, these, these flowers, et cetera. Or it's, you know, the other way around where the, there's that sales rep relationship with their, you know, building those relationships directly with the retailers, etc. There's still that order model, right? Then that, then that is applied to financing in terms of, you know, capital and, and making sure that they can leverage our, you know, debt facility round to, to, you know, have liquidity in the market, etc. And then going to the logistics side, it's an order needs to get shipped, right? We need to receive the product from the producer. We need to hope, have it in our warehouse, we need to make sure that it gets shipped on time and delivered on time to our, to the uh, retailers, right? All of those things revolve around that order data model, a event architecture or event driven architecture will allow us to have different uh, triggers and, and different sources of change within uh, our entire platform. So, you know, it would be a large undertaking if we had all of our engineers touching the order model, right? It could get pretty hairy because one engineer might, you know, tweak it. So it's, you know, optimized for the marketplace where the other one's is gonna tweak it for so it's optimized for logistics and the other one's finance, et cetera. Having a domain owner of that order allows a single source of truth, which then allows kind of the ownership there where the other aspects of the platform are the customers to that data model, right? Mm-hmm. So that event architecture allows in some cases a fire and forget type of use case where, Hey, you know, we are on the financing side. A user is a a customer is making changes to their net terms. Maybe they're getting an extension. Maybe they're making a a payment. So we're going to send an audit log data. We're going to store data around that change and we're going to fire it off and forget about it because it doesn't necessarily affect day-to-day work. Right. Whereas let's say the logistics side, It's a little bit more important, right, where we're going to fire that saying, okay, we picked up the product, we packaged it into totes, it's ready for delivery, and we're just waiting for the the driver to come by and pick it up. All those notifications um, get funneled back into that order, we have that up-to-date in real time, so then we can show visibility through the entire platform as well.
1: Oh yeah, that's super interesting, and makes total sense to be honest. Especially when you have so many different products that they have to they operate. I mean, I think that adopting such a model like gives much more agility in terms of like iterating, coming up with new products. If you need to, I think it's pretty interesting. So, have you already implemented this, or are you are in the process of doing that?
2: Yeah, we're in the process of rolling this out. Right. the The challenge is, you know. Re- service-oriented architecture, event-driven architecture is relatively, I, not necessarily new, but it, it's new to a lot of engineers. So part of that is, is making sure that we train our engineers in in how we think event architecture, event-driven architecture or service-oriented architecture should function, setting up those guardrails, right, so that they can have room to explore and learn, but it's still within these, these high level guardrails in terms of meeting our strategic vision of, of what those things mean. So it's a thoughtful process. Like I mentioned earlier, it's a, we're very methodical about how we deliver products. So it's a thoughtful process in terms of making sure that they're trained up, making sure that we have the appropriate architecture or arc specs. We have the, the guardrails in place to make sure that it's hitting our strategic vision, et cetera.
1: Yeah, makes sense. So you mentioned that you are a Python shop, right? So and you are also like hosted on AWS. In terms of like technologies, frameworks, and infrastructure, what you have been using to enable this new paradigm inside the company? And can you give us a couple of tips like from your experience with that transition so far? Part of the
2: move towards more service architecture is these decisions around what framework are we using? What specific technologies are we're using? It's starting to become a little bit more minimized, right? You know, as I mentioned before, at the very beginning, we are Django Python shop, right now we have flash services. We have Django services. We have Lambda functions that don't leverage any framework, right? Cause it's a, a function as a service, right? So those decisions are becoming more minimized. We're going to start to bring on different technology stacks in terms of node especially like in the finance realm is, is a really popular tool in finance technology, that a lot of engineers who have that experience, have experience in node, right? So like, it makes sense for us to bring that technology into our platform. One from a recruitment perspective, right? Because not everybody's a Python developer, but you know, there's a lot of, you know, other developers out there. And then also the way we think about it is around like, what's the best tool for the job, right? You know? Is it, do we need more kind of a WebSocket real-time functionality so that customers can see real-time statuses of orders? Yeah, that makes sense. So let's let's focus on a maybe a Node tool that leverages WebSockets. In the Amazon world, they have you know another uh, implementation of that is leveraging API gateways, new like web so- relatively new WebSocket tool. Um, where you can back it by a lambda function. So you could write it in Python, right? There's a lot of tools out there that that we can leverage that we're moving towards.
1: Yeah, these are all great advantages of following such an architecture. Do you see any drawbacks to that? Usually in life, everything's a trade-off, right? So yeah. I would assume that there is also like a trade-off there. What do you see as the trade-off?
2: Obviously, there are technology trade-offs and there's people trade-offs. From a technology perspective, you know, it is, do we, or I guess they're all kind of tied to people as well. It's like, do we have engineers who know the new technology, right? Like just because we have one engineer doesn't mean we should actually move towards that specific technology because, you know, the whole bus rule, and if they get hit by bus, then we are left with nobody who knows, you know, Fortran at the company. That's not a good decision, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so like those are part of the technology decisions. So being thoughtful around what new technology we're introducing. The next is, is around training, you know? You can read blog posts about, the proper way to do service-oriented architecture, right? And people could take those blog posts and be like, yeah, we gotta do it, but they don't fully understand the ramifications of that. So really having engineers really focus in and understand the ramifications of each technology choice and why, why to do it or why not to do it is, is critical. So making sure that training is there because we can get into a path where we're, we have a whole bunch of half solutions that because of blog posts were you know good ideas at the time, and then we have this disjointed, crumbling platform, right?
1: Makes sense. Makes sense. One last technical question before I let uh, Eric ask uh, his questions. I noticed on the, the website that you have invested heavily on exposing APIs. To be honest, I find it this very interesting for a marketplace. Most of the marketplaces that I know that they don't invest that much in creating an environment where their customers can integrate with. That's more of a business question that reflects also like on the engineering side of things. But why you did that and what's the value of having something like this?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, having APIs is is definitely critical to our customers. You know, as I mentioned, our platform, we have, you know, 1800 plus brands, 5700 plus retailers ranging from smaller uh, like mom and pop shops to large, you know, multi-state operators, right? Our APIs provide critical integrations to help those customers automate and optimize their businesses to be more successful. Right. You know, I think that building a developer ecosystem and evangelizing those APIs, is critical so that they, you know, not only are, are those companies successful, but in, in return, LeafLink is successful, Right. Yeah, You know, as they say, every, every company is a, a software company at this point. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, And you know, where they can automate things away, where they can focus on those critical value adds, right. I, I, it's kind of like, you know, delegation at, at a engineering management perspective, you know, where you can automate and save some time. Like you can then use your leadership capital in other areas, for example.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how do you see the adoption of that like from smaller uh, customers that you have? Because from what I understood, from what you mentioned, you have like every size of like companies that you interact with as customers. So I I would assume like bigger companies, like it's much easier for them like to employ or like have some even subcontractors like to work with that. But with smaller companies and shops, for example, do you see like adoption also there to the APIs that you expose? And how do you see this working actually?
2: Yeah, so we we have a API public API and integrations team as well here at LeafLink. So not only, you know, are we here to help, you know, serve the larger customers through those public APIs, but we also have other organizations in one case, other organizations that are building integrations of their cannabis specific technical products that are leveraging APIs against LeafLink product because their customers are also our customers. So it makes sense from an integration of a third kind of third party vendor perspective. And then we also on the smaller integration side, those smaller companies we're seeing are leveraging external things uh, like marketing tools or you know additional different CRMs that we have integrations with, and we leverage you know appropriate work, uh, workflow tools to, to push data between and sync data between those third-party vendors and our platform as well.
1: That sounds great. I find it very interesting, to be honest, like extremely interesting. I have some stories from other uh, marketplaces where they were trying like, to do something similar in the past, like a couple of years ago. And mm-hmm. it was a big part of the work to be done to figure out how we can help small e-shops, for example, to integrate with our platform. But anyway, that's a discussion for uh, another day. Eric, he's all yours.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I just want to just touch on one other point. One of the other benefits is that, you know, again, going back to the compliance side, there are multiple markets that leverage metric. From a compliance perspective, those integrations are critical for the small companies, the larger companies to have those integrations uh, because in a non-integrated world, you have you know, multiple sheets of paper that people have to sign and and work through from a logistics perspective. So this is just a, another great benefit of our integrations and APIs.
0: Well, Mike, we're getting close to time here. So we'll end with a question. I you know. I, I'm constantly thinking about ways that we can help our listeners, especially when we get to talk to someone like you who has such a, such a diverse background working at some huge companies. So the question I have is, you know, you've, you've worked at Salesforce, you've worked at Nike. LeafLink is, you know, obviously smaller than those companies growing at a, a really fast clip. I would just love to know working at really massive organizations like Salesforce and Nike, what are some of the lessons that you've learned about scale that have stuck with you or, you know, that have sort of formed the way that you think about building software, you know, especially at an earlier stage company?
2: Yeah. Some of like the first things that kind of pop into mind are around, you know, keeping things simple, right? The whole, you know, KISS kiss architectures, right? Where, you know, trying to build and abstract these things out are pre-optimized has caused more issues in the future than they're than that were helpful right abstracting away functionality mm-hmm. because that's how you do it in in java or you know building multiple layers and building a building a non-scalable layer on top of a you know serverless highly scalable system like just it in theory it may make sense and you know you're you're setting yourself up for great innovation three years down the line but today you're not serving your customers right Hmm. so like you know kind of how i how i think about and how i you know what i've learned over the years is like yes have an eye towards the future right understand where where you want to go strategically but really you got to build for today right so that that eye towards the future will inform what you're building today but you really still have to deliver value you have to build the functionality to for your customers prove that you know your product works, you have product market fit and all those great things. So you can then in the future, scale it out and build those really, you Hmm. know, artistic solutions.
0: Sure. Yeah. Artistic is such an interesting way to put it. And I think if I had to distill that perspective into a word, I would probably choose mature. And it's interesting to hear you. Yeah. I think the word nuance can be overused, but the, con- the concept of looking into the future and being informed and the difference between being informed about the future and building for today and building for the future, those sound very similar, but there's a significant difference. And one thing that comes to mind, Costas, that we've heard other guests on the show talk about is this concept almost of a boring stack, you know, where they say, you know, our stack isn't, isn't crazy, but that's because it works really well and it's really reliable for our customers. And that's the most important thing. So really need to hear that perspective reiterated. Yeah, e- exactly. I you know, I
2: agree with that fully. It's that, you know, when it comes to engineering talent or or you know, time and experience, like that is the artistic part of, of what we do is is knowing that nuance between like like you mentioned. Building for now with the eye towards the future or building for the future, right? That's, that's where you can find those really talented engineers who can, who can do that effectively.
0: Sure. Yeah, it's, I was watching a talk from a founder. I can't remember exactly which one, but they talked about this, you know, innovation, looking into the future and imagining a different world. And he said, that's really cool for building new types of technology, but not great for building a business because, you know, people aren't ready to buy that. Yet. <laughs> you know? right. But yeah, that's a really good point. Like, you know, there are people who have real problems right now. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. We've learned a ton. It sounds like you're doing really incredible things at LeafLink, really in all regards, but especially in the software development lifecycle. And we'd love to we'd love to catch up with you. Down the line, when you've had a little bit more time in the saddle there, and hear how things are going.
2: Excellent, and thank you for having me on. I, you know, I look forward to seeing if there's any questions. If anybody wants to reach out and and again contact me with me, feel free. Looking forward to all that, and thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Well, that was a great conversation, and I'm glad we got our top questions answered. I think one of the things, and I'm probably going to repeat this a lot because it's a recurring theme is this concept of keeping it simple and almost having a boring stack. I thought that the way that Mike described having a simple stack and the value of that for your customers today was really well said. And I think just points to how mature he is after having such a vast amount of experience at all sorts of different huge companies.
1: I found extremely interesting, actually, the conversation that we had about my initial question. It is amazing to hear from a company that is building marketplaces, which traditionally they are supposed to be not very technical in terms of the products that they expose. And having Mike actually saying that even small shops are software companies today, and they need to be if they want to survive. That was a great insight. And I'm really looking forward to see how this is going to progress in the future because I think we will see more and more products like these that they are more consumer focused and not uh, that technical to become more and more technical in order to deliver value. So looking forward to chat with him again in the future and see what's going on and uh, what's new with LeafLink and uh, Mike himself. Me too. Well, thanks again for joining the Data Stack Show. Subscribe
0: to get notified about new episodes on the platform of your choice, and we will catch you on the next one.